Well, good morning, friends. It's so good to see you. If you're here in person, glad you're here. If you're joining us online, we're thankful that you are with us. What a special day to be together. This Thursday, uh, my wife and I had just our youngest daughter with us, Madeline. She's seven. And so we decided to go out and get lunch, and we went to a little local Korean spot because I'm you know, I love Korean food, and I'm half Korean, so it made sense for us. And so we went, and we enjoyed a wonderful lunch together. And after lunch, we got back in the car, and I'm backing out of the parking spot, and I hear Madeline's little voice from the back seat say, what's for dinner? <laughs> we, we literally just had lunch, and she's thinking about dinner. And Erin shot me this accusatory look, and she said, that's your daughter. That, that's your child. You know, parents, how that is. Because as soon as one meal is done... I'm thinking about the next one. I'm making arrangements and plans, and Maddie is just like me. Since last Easter, how many of you remember what last Easter was like? Not surrounded by friends and family, surrounded by masks and toilet paper, right? Since last Easter ended, I've been looking forward to this morning, and I'm glad you're here. And it's God's God's grace that you're here and that we're here, and I'm so thankful that we can be together this morning. And what we're going to do together is we're going to look, as we always do, into the scriptures. And we're going to look at a letter that Paul wrote to a bunch of churches in a city called Corinth. And in this letter, which was publicly read and widely distributed, uh, Paul begins to answer some of the concerns of these early believers whose friends and family members were dying, and they were wondering what happens to them. And Paul wants to remind them of the resurrection. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 20 years later, Paul was still talking about it. 2,000 years later, we're still here this morning talking about it. And I really just want to answer two questions about the resurrection. Number one, what does it matter? And number two, what does it mean? What does it matter? What does it mean? And so we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read to you beginning in verse 12. Paul says, But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying that there's no resurrection of the dead? For if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ himself has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we apostles, we're liars, we're lying about God. For we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and he is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Paul's not very subtle here. He's very clear. He's saying if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, none of this matters. Our faith is useless. Our preaching is useless. We are liars. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then there's no hope for you and I beyond this life. We are miserable. You should pity us. We've wasted our lives and our hopes here and now. And to Paul, the resurrection mattered because everything about his faith, his life, his present, and his future depended and hinged on this historical event. But what I want us to consider this morning in answering the question, what does it matter, is that the reason why the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead really matters is because it really happened. And if it didn't really happen, then what are we doing this morning? What is this all about? 
My, my wife and I actually have three daughters, 12, 10, and 7. And so our house, how do I say this? Our house is filled with words. <laughs> filled with words. Lots of talking. Lots of uh, sharing. <laughs> and um, my wife is an amazing, patient listener. These girls talk her ear off all day long, and she's amazing. But she does draw a line. And when they were younger, they loved to talk to her about their TV show characters, these fictional characters in these fictional worlds who were doing fictional things. And Aaron, I would hear Aaron over and over and say, girls, I love you and I want to listen to you, but talk to me about something real. I want to hear about your life. I want to hear something real. And this morning, I hope you understand that we've gathered together not to talk about something fictional or some fantasy, but something that billions of people around this world believe to be genuinely real. And if Jesus himself did not rise from the dead, then let's just walk away and forget this whole thing. But if he did, then nobody can just walk away and forget this thing. We have to consider it. I want to go back to the text real quick and, and read what Paul actually says about the resurrection of Jesus in this chapter. In verse 3, he says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins. This is what we celebrated and remembered on Good Friday, just as the Scripture said. And then he was buried and raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. And most of them are still alive. He's saying, go talk to them. Go ask these people. This is only 20 years later. Some of them have died. And then verse 7, he says, Though then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. After Jesus died, what happened next? Sometimes if you're trying to understand what happened, you need to look at what happened next. And when Jesus died, he was buried. And he was placed in a tomb, and there was a large stone that was rolled in front of the tomb. And this is really all sort of agreed upon historical fact. Roman soldiers were stationed by the tomb for the express purpose of no one being able to steal the body, which the Jewish people would never have done on the Sabbath anyway because it violated a core principle of their faith to do work on the Sabbath. But when the women got to the tomb on Sunday morning, it was empty. Now, it's interesting because if you were making this story up, which some people think this whole story was made up, but if you were making it up, this detail of the women being the first witnesses of the empty tomb, you would never have included this. And the reason why is because at that time in history and at that, in that society, a woman's uh, testimony was not admissible in court, not in Jewish court, not in Roman court. And so the idea that the women were the first witnesses, you would only include this detail if it actually happened. And so the tomb is found empty. Jesus' body is never discovered, which is the only thing that the Roman rulers and the Jewish authority would have had to have done to squash this whole story. All they had to do, the two most powerful forces in the world at that time, was find the body of Jesus, and it was never found. Jesus then, as Paul said, appeared to people, not just a few random people, and not one at a time where you could say it was a hallucination, but in one case, 500 people at the same time. And anybody who knows anything about hallucinations, 500 people do not have the same hallucination at the same time. Peter Williams says this, the resurrected Jesus is recorded as appearing in Judea and in Galilee, in town and countryside, indoors and outdoors, in the morning and the evening, by prior appointment and without prior appointment, close and distant, on a hill and by a lake, to groups of men and to groups of women, 
to individuals and to groups of up to 500, sitting, standing, walking, eating, and always talking. And what's interesting is that when Jesus appeared after the resurrection, he appeared with a body. And when we read these accounts of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, there's a couple interesting things. He eats food. He can be physically touched. But in one scene, he actually walks through a wall and appears out of nowhere to his disciples. So what this means is that Jesus was neither a revived normal human being, because normal human beings don't walk through walls, nor was he a ghost, because ghosts do not eat and cannot be physically touched. He was something completely different. Now, that might not be that startling to you, but at this time, if you study Jewish and Greco-Roman literature and legend, nothing like this existed. There was no framework, no category for this sort of resurrected body. You would not have created this or made this up because this was not familiar or convincing, but this is what they experienced. And this remarkable story was widely spread and known and told. Many of the witnesses were still alive when Paul wrote this letter. And then let's look again at his followers, his disciples. Jesus' closest followers were filled with boldness and courage and strength and began to turn the world upside down, telling this story of a resurrected Jesus. Now, look at the disciples before the cross. They're not impressive. They don't have it together. Jesus told them over and over, I'm here to die and I'm going to be raised from the dead on the third day. None of them saw it coming. None of them believed him. Then look at when he died, when he went to the cross. They all abandoned him. They left him to be. They hid. They lost their faith. And then even after they heard about his resurrection and Peter and John saw the empty tomb, for the next two weeks, every time we see the disciples, they're hiding inside a room, just wondering if the Romans are coming for them next. Listen, the disciples of Jesus were not brave. They were not courageous. They weren't world changers on their own. But something happened. And after seeing the resurrected Jesus Christ, it changed their lives forever. And every single one of them took that story about Jesus being risen from the dead all over the known world. Thomas took it to India. People took it all over the world. And every single one of them, except for John, died, was executed, were persecuted and killed and martyred for their faith, telling the story, this is what happened. Now, if this was a lie, if it was made up, the disciples would have known because they would have been the source of the lie. And people don't knowingly give their lives for a lie. At some point, one of them, when tied to a stake to be burned or about to be executed, would have said, oh, hold on, hold on, it's a joke, it's a joke. We made it up. Not a single one of them did. Every single one of them went to their death saying, I saw Jesus, and he's alive, and he's the risen Savior. And the world was turned upside down to where three billion people this morning around the world are gathering. Okay, that's what happened next. So what does this all mean? It means this. If you will not allow for the possibility of the resurrection, if you want to discard the resurrection, if you want to rule out the resurrection, and I realize it's a, hard, it's a hard leap to make for many people, but if you want to do that, that's fine, but you have a formidable challenge in front of you, and your challenge is this, answering the question, what explanation do you have for what happens next? What, what explanation do you have for the historical fact of the rapid development of this new view of resurrection, which never existed before, and for the explosive growth of the Christian movement, which went from just a sort of, uh, you know, bunch of uneducated fishermen to being declared by Constantine the official religion of Rome in 300 years. What's your explanation for what happened next? 
Some people say, well, his followers made it up. But to believe that his followers made it up is to not understand the Jewish faith. The Jewish faith actually was the least, like, least likely faith for this story to emerge from, for this narrative to be created out of. The, the Romans believed that God could become man. They believed that, that Nero was God. They believed that all their Caesars were God. The Greeks had all kinds of beliefs about different gods coming and mingling with humans, but not the Jews. The Jews held God at a distance. They, they would not even write his name out in full. They would not write out, write out the vowels of his name. That's the sort of reverence and respect they had for him. They did not believe that God could become man. They did not believe that the Messiah was going to die. And they did not believe in a resurrection here and now, but a resurrection at the end of history, at the end of time. And so for the Jewish people to have made up this, this is so against everything that they've known and taught and believed and lived as a people. N.T. Wright, who's an English New Testament scholar, an Anglican bishop says this. He has, by the way, the definitive book on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you want to read more. The early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings or sightings of the risen Jesus. Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. To suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and enter into a fantasy world of our own. And then he says, no other explanations have been offered in the 2,000 years of sneering skepticism that can satisfactorily account for how the tomb came to be empty, how the disciples came to see Jesus, and how their lives and their worldviews, and I would add, and the world itself was transformed. Now, many people have fair and honest issues with Christianity, right? objections, obstacles, and maybe that's you this morning. And there's plenty of legitimate ones when you look through the history of Christianity and the things that have been done in the name of Jesus by people who claim to be Christians. Even the hypocrites in our churches, the, sort of maybe the scandals in our churches, maybe you don't align with the ethics of the Christian faith. The morality of the Christian faith seems archaic and it closes in on you and the politics of the church. I get it. It's a mess. And it's not very attractive. But listen, the Christian faith does not rise and fall on any of those things. The Christian faith rises and falls on a historical event. The question is not, do you like this story? The question is, is this story true? And while you may have legitimate problems with all the other things I mentioned, and those are real problems, and the church has to own that, none of those things taken on their own means or proves that Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead on the third day. And if you're willing to carefully and closely consider both the claims of Jesus and the way he has influenced, impacted, and redirected the course of human history, you're going to be left with this realization, as I am, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is one of two things. It's either the greatest hoax ever, or it's the greatest hope ever. It's either the greatest hoax on humankind ever, or it's the greatest hope for humankind ever. And there is no middle ground. And that's why it matters. This past December, my wife and I, in a moment of insanity, decided to get a puppy. <laughs> And so we got this little guy from a rescue agency, and the description online said he was a Labrador mix. And we're like, we kind of want a Labrador. This is perfect. And so we go. We kind of got to get him sight unseen. She picks him up, brings him back to her house. We surprise the girls, and we take one look at him, and we're like, that is not a Labrador mix. We thought he was a beagle, so we did that whole buy the DNA kit on Amazon. It's like, I have never even done my own DNA, and I'm doing this puppy's DNA. And so we do this puppy's DNA because we want to see what we got. And, of course, he's nothing like what we thought. In fact, here's this, this is what we got back. This is his mix. 
So he is a, he's, he's, he's a mutt, right? If there's five of you, you're a mutt. So he's a 29% treeing walker coonhound, which I had never heard of before, but apparently that means that he's super annoying. Uh, he's 22% rat terrier, not the greatest name. He's, he's a pit bull, which we would not have necessarily chosen for our young family. Um, mountain cur, English Springer, Spaniel. And so we thought we were getting a Labrador mix. We got a mix. That part was correct. Um, but we didn't get a Labrador mix. Now, listen, it doesn't really matter anymore. He's been with us for six months. And as frustrating as he is 95% of the time, we love him. And he's our puppy now, right? We were wrong, but it's not a big deal. There's some things in life you can be wrong about, and it's not a big deal, right? Some of you like Pepsi more than Coke. You're wrong, but it's, it's, it's not a big deal. In fact, I thank you for that because that means there's more Coke Specifically, Coke Zero, right? No calories. Coke Zero for me. Some of, some of you like cake more than pie. You're wrong. Pie's better than cake, but it's not a big deal. Some of you today will eat ham instead of lamb. You're wrong. <laughs> lamb is superior, but it's not that big of a deal. Some things, it doesn't matter if you're right or you're wrong. Listen, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is not one of those things. It matters if you're wrong. It matters a lot. That's what this means. So what does this resurrection event actually mean for you and for me? I want to go back to verse 20, and I just want to point out, Paul says, Christ has been raised from the dead. This last sentence is how we're going to finish our message. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. I'm going to ask the band to join me. We're going to sing a song in a moment. But what I, what I appreciate about Paul is that the, the, the Christians in Corinth are saying to Paul, hey, our friends are dying and our family is dying and, and, and we're scared and we don't know what's coming with them or, or what's happening to them. I'm so thankful that Paul doesn't say, ah, they're not really dying. You don't re-. Paul doesn't hide from the reality that everyone dies. He says, all who have died. That everyone dies. The Christian faith doesn't bury its head in the ground. It does not lose its head in the clouds because the resurrection will not let us. And let me explain. The resurrection does not mean, some people think it means this, but it does not mean this. The resurrection does not mean that there is a way around death. Listen, there's no way around death. I've experienced it in my own life. I've buried my dad. I've buried my brother. I've buried some of your family members. I've stood by my friend's uh, sides as they've buried their young children. I've stood by a friend's side as she buried her young husband. I've been in those dark, difficult moments with many of you, and there's no way around it. We don't have a way around death. Christianity is not about escape. It's about engaging and enduring. Look at Jesus. He did not escape He went to the cross where he endured. And there's no Easter Sunday without Good Friday. There's no resurrection without death. And just like the darkness gives beauty to light and the valley gives shape to the mountains and suffering uh, in a way makes sense of our success, it's death. Death has a unique ability to show us the value of life. See, the tomb that Jesus was buried in, it was empty before Good Friday and it meant nothing. But then it was empty on Easter Sunday, and it meant everything. What happened between that time? The cross, the death of Jesus Christ. And and here's what the resurrection means. It doesn't mean there's a way around death, but it does mean there's a way through death. There's no way around stuff in this life, but there's a way through the stuff of this life. There's no way around death, but there's a way through death. 
And that's what the resurrection means for you and me. And when Jesus was talking about his own death, which he did often towards the end of his life, in John chapter 12, verse 24, he says to his followers, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. And Jesus was prophetically speaking of what he was about to do. He was saying, listen, I'm gonna fall into the ground and die. And if I don't do this for you, I will remain alone. But if I do this, I'm gonna burst forth on the third day and I'm gonna bear much fruit. And that's why Paul said that Jesus, did you hear, did you see what he said? Jesus is the first of a great harvest. If Jesus is just the first fruits of the harvest, that means there's more to come. When Jesus stepped out of his grave on Easter Sunday, that meant that someday you can step out of your grave. When your time comes, there is not a way around death, but there's a way through death. And Jesus took death and put death in its place. Jesus took our great enemy, death, and made him nothing more than a doorkeeper to eternal life. That's all he is. I saw a tweet earlier this week that says, death, listen to this, I love this, death used to be an executioner. But because of the resurrection, death is now only a gardener. Because you don't bury Christians, you plant them. And because Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day, we have hope for this life and for the next life. And that's what it means. There's a way through. Pastor Tim Keller from Manhattan says it this way. He says, even though we still must physically die, nevertheless, death cannot separate us from God and his world of love. Indeed, death can only infinitely enhance our experience of the love and joy of God's presence. And someday, even death itself will die. I don't know all of you, and I don't know where you're at, and I don't know what you're going through, but here's what I know. There may not be a way around it, but there's a way through it. Is your body broken? I'm sorry, there's probably not a way around that. That's the way things are now, but there's a way through it. Is your mind, your emotions broken? There may not be a way around, but there's a way through. Broken relationships, broken hearts, broken dreams, a broken world. The resurrection doesn't say, oh, don't worry about it. It's real, and there's a way through it because of Jesus Christ, and that's what the resurrection means. At the end of his great trilogy, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, the last book is called The Return of the King, and there's a scene where Sam Gamgee, this, this hobbit, is in a dark, desperate, despair-filled moment, and this is one of my favorite quotes from that trilogy. It says this, there, peeping among the cloud rack, Above a dark tower, high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. And the beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hoped to return to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him in the end. Look at this. I think we have it right here. we go one more slide. There we go. Go back. Thank you. In the end, that the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. What does the resurrection mean? It means this, that the shadow is only a small and passing thing, but there is a light and a high beauty forever. Now, how can we know that beauty? It's through Jesus. It's believing that Jesus lived in our, lived in our place the life that we should have lived. He died in our place the death we should have died, but also he rose from the dead on the third day to save us 
And we are hopeless without the resurrection because it's not our good works, it's not our behavior, it's not even our doctrine, it's not our church attendance, it's none of that stuff that makes us right with God. It's our union with Christ that we have placed all of our faith and trust fully and solely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then we become united to Christ. And it's that un- it's being united with Christ that gives us the acceptance by God, the approval from God, and the access to God that our hearts desperately crave and need. And it's all possible because of the resurrection. What does it matter? It's either the greatest hope or the greatest hoax. You, you have to decide. What does it mean? It means there's a way through. Let's pray together.